From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, another virtual edition coming to you from Zoom. Whole team is here for an hour of sports analytics. Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, this is Cade Massey. We're going to do these virtuals as long as we can't be together. We spent about the first half hour on coronavirus as the context of our lives and certainly the context for sport and then transition more to a little bit more sports centric, though, inevitably COVID-19 influenced discussion. Guys, how are you this morning or this afternoon? Rather? Doing well. Uh, good. good. Good, good, good. Always delighted to be with you. Always delighted to help make sense of the world with you. I'm curious first, COVID-19, what has caught your eye in the world of coronavirus in the last week? Well, I noticed, you know, I've been tracking every, every early in the week. I always go back and look at, I redone, I download the GitHub. I go and I just fill out my spreadsheet and, and take a look at what's changed. You know, we've been since uh, 525, since Memorial Day, we've been looking for the deaths to, uh, to make an obvious uh, run up. Well, I can finally announce that it's been visible to people who know how to look, but it's now finally visible to everybody else. So it's not like it's, it, we saw, I saw it last week. We talked about it, um, but it's now much more visible. Florida's finally seen, uh, um, a fairly lengthy, uh, sizable increase. Uh, Texas had it's seen this before. It's not like, it, as I said, it wasn't, it was perfectly visible, but uh, most people don't know how to read a graph on the log scale. So now that, now that you, now everyone's seeing it and that's really there. So let me comment on this because, you know, I've started to think about, so maybe why did it take longer? And actually there's a very good statistical explanation. So in the early days of COVID, it was mainly people 60, 70 and older who were getting infected, who were dying, right? And yep. while that's still true, think about the way the transmission is going now. It's going from 20 to 30-year-olds, so maybe that takes some time. Then it goes to their 40- and 50-year-old parents, and then that takes some time. And then it spreads maybe to their parents, who are the 70- and 80-year-olds. So you could imagine that to go from Memorial Day to increased deaths, in some sense, it had to go from A to B to C, as opposed to just going from C to yep. C. And that's my belief about why it's taken longer for this transmission cycle to reach the most vulnerable population. So and I mean, it's, there's also the medical reason that we have gotten better at treating it. Oh, yes. So we're, we're not necessarily going to sort of see that same. I mean, you're talking, I guess, more of the increased, I guess, in lag. Yes, between I'm changes to between exactly. slopes, but but one would you know one would certainly expect the kind of like whatever relationship that we had early on between transmission and deaths to be pretty different this time around, just because you know we're you know we're right, the, you know four months of medical history on right case fatality rate seems to be lower. Is it not the case that we're we're not also getting the the positive tests earlier in their life cycle because before we would get them when someone walked into the hospital essentially and so it's much further along whatever progression it's going to take yep. and now we're getting them when people may even be asymptomatic and they're testing for some other reason yes that we're not seeing but i'll just respond to the case fatality rate you know back in the early days given the limited group of people who were, who were actually decided as cases, the case fatality rate observed case fatality rate was about 10 percent five to ten percent in new york um we're observing now a half a percent uh, case fatality rate. It's hard to know yet because the cases haven't finished. You have to resolve. Um, but in any case, you have a much lower lower impact. And a lot of that is because of the, the testing universality of it, as Cade points out. But also, we have fortunately, and Florida is an example of this, and I think Texas too, but, uh, but maybe Cade knows, um, we really have kept it out of the nursing homes. 
um, in New Jersey and in New York, it was it destroyed the nursing homes. And right. so Massachusetts you, as well. Yeah. And if we're really going to see the real question is what's going to what's the forecast going in the future? And I would have to put whatever my forecast is and I could give one. Um, it would have a really wide band prediction band because it would have to do with does it make it into the nursing homes? or it doesn't. And that's the huge uncertainty. Well, that's really good to hear because we talk about that a lot on the show. And then I read it a lot in people talking about policy. We, we recognize heterogeneity, but the, the most important heterogeneous populations are the ones most at risk and where we need the strongest shutdown policies and the greatest social distancing are at the most risk at risk populations like the nursing home populations. And so it's nice to hear a success story on that front. So, this is a question. This is a question to all of you. Maybe you guys have seen the data, but just to simplify things, let's break up the population into four twenty-year buckets. So twenty to forty, forty to sixty, sixty to eighty, and eighty plus. Okay, pretty decent. Yeah. So let's. It's reasonable to do that. And here's my question: Is the reason why the marginal observed marginal death rate is lower, which it definitely is? There's no doubt about it. Is it because there's two possible explanations? One is the weighted fraction of each of those four groups has stayed the same, but the death rate within those groups have gone down. Or another explanation is that the weights have changed. We're now seeing a larger fraction of people in the 20 to 40 and 40 to 60 group, because again, as you said, that the nursing homes aren't getting ravaged. Do you guys know, it's got to be some, at least the first one, the second one. It has to at least Oh, it's be, absolutely no, the second No, one. it has to be the second one. Yeah. But this is my question. There's also the first also one. The I think first. within, well, within cohort, so what fatality evidence? rates have gone down as I know. well. Sure. So what evidence do we have that, let's say, conditional on an 80-year-old, whether it's getting the disease or getting COVID or going to the hospital? What evidence do we have that the death rate has gone down conditional on each of those buckets? Okay, well, evidence is hard to come by um, on that specific one because you'd need like cohort age adjusted difficulty. That's a tough business. Um, and maybe the doctors themselves have some of this stuff, but the public really doesn't. The CDC and all the public suppliers are not good about giving you individual data on an individual case kind of basis. So we definitely know about the, de the mixture. We can see that. Um, um, it's, and it's like double, like the percentage of people under, you know, 40 that getting it now compared to what it was, is about double. And that changes in the environment, depending on which state you're in. Um, and we definitely see way fewer 80 year olds and, um, up getting it now, but we don't know specifically age adjusted. You, you, and there's a lot of evidence from, or suggested evidence because of, we have drugs and the doctors claim they work, but we don't have a, you know, you know, population-wide data. To well, that's why, that's why I asked the question. Yeah. And those of you who are examining the data, like, so one of the big kind of issues, like over the last couple, you know, week or two, political issues that has, you know, caught my eye, and I'm sure caught a lot of people's eyes, is that, you know, they basically, the data does not go to the CDC anymore. The data goes to the White House or yeah, wherever the data goes. HHS, right? whatever. Um, and I guess my question is, I'm asking this as kind of a naive person reading the news does that mean like the data that you guys look at that people use to measure all this stuff is that now going through the white house or is there kind of independent like do, do hospitals also send data independently uh to other organizations besides the government so we have some kind of check on that great question i've been wondering the same thing so the yeah. two repositories i think about are the johns hopkins site and the new york times site but i don't know the origin of their data 
Yeah, where they, they, yeah, no, I mean, were they originally pulling from the CDC, and now we have to kind of trust the White House somehow on the raw data, right, which so I'm skeptical is, about. I've been looking into this from the very beginning. Um, things were never good, so I doubt they got better, but <laughs> they never were good to start with. Um, the problem is that we have 50 states, and that's where the trouble always begins with. Um, and within the states, you have the municipalities, and the municipalities have their own systems. And while they have been nationally been required to report things, and I guess they're changing that at all, but the national data has always been bad from the start and very different from the municipality and the state level. Okay, so hold on. Yeah. This is actually a positive message for the consequences of this change from last week because you're saying Johns Hopkins and the Times are aggregating nationally. So even though it's not perfect, that is not subject to change no. if the hospitals now have been redirected from the CDC to HHS. I don't think. Well, I, don't no, think well, I mean, no, I mean, your comment is that the data is bad. I'm, I still haven't heard that in looking at that data, you're not getting that bad data, you know, fr from the CDC. Is that data going directly to other people besides the government? I have no idea. All I can tell you is that the CDC, I, where, I don't the, even know. The data being bad actually just gives the government extra latitude to, yeah. you know, manipulate. So the state, but the state's data is, you really, the thing is, is if you look at what Johns Hopkins are doing, New York Times are doing, they're getting it from all over and they're trying to join, you know, connect it. So if you, I don't have the time individually as a person and I'm a lab, um, although I know, I know like Ben Yu is her lab in, in, in Berkeley and in, in U Texas, um, there's a lab doing this. There's lots and lots of people going to the repositories and picking them up. And right. you got to go, you really spend a lot of legwork together to go down to the actual sources. So the sources are still there. They're still making it public uh, to the degree that they were. That's not really changing. It's the forced national aggregation system, which Good. I think was only one Good. piece of the puzzle from, from the okay. very beginning. I think that's real helpful. It's a, it's a reminder that most of these municipalities, maybe virtually all of them are posting data in some form just as a, as a function of government. So for example, I know this about Texas, the, the, the Department of Safety and Health Statistics or whatever it's called, dishes down there, posts regularly all the stuff. And Adi has said their data are better than most states, but the yep. point is municipalities have kind of their own mission to provide these data to local officials and to local citizenry. And so anybody who can go out and get all those data are gonna have access to it, subject to the quality of the data, of course. Yeah, you know, it, it gets back to what I know Adi's been chirping about, chirping in a good way, about the <laughs> last you. four months, which is, you know, we have a bad data problem here. Because let's talk about the data ideally you would have, right? Ideally, you might want to know, so conditional on someone having it, in some sense, what's the R factor? What's the, what's the spread rate? You might like to know conditional on that. What's the likelihood the person's going to require hospitalization? Then you might want to know something about the death rate. And so the problem is, is that the this is where statisticians should work with policy people. The implication of what you do, it really does matter. Is it, just using the example before, is it the mixtures weights that are changing? Is it the probability within the mixture, uh, within the bin? Is it the reason why it's larger? Because matter of fact, we don't even know whether it could be true that the, R, the probability of a given person spreading it, maybe that's gone up, maybe that's gone down. We don't actually know. And the problem is the remedy you would take would differ. So Eric, it's, it's, a, it's a great point. On the, on the R, RT, people talk about R not, that's in the beginning. RT is the more general term. Yep. Um, as, as you know, because you've just pulled some data in, there's this site that was developed in the last couple of months that tries to estimate RT for every state 
And yep. of course, this is, you know, you don't observe it directly. So you have to infer it from a few different numbers. But they've been following this for a few months. And why don't you tell us what they're currently showing and what you make of it? Well, I mean, very simply, the, the magic number supposedly is, you know, one. If it's above one, then that's a state where, you know, for every person exposed, how many other people get it? So in some sense, if that's less than one, then I get it. Okay, but um, eventually I'm not going to have it anymore. The question is, do I get replaced by more than one person with it or less than one person with it? And what we can see is two months ago, roughly half the states had an RT above one and half below one. And now it's 43 out of 50 states with a value of R above one. So from that point of view, um, it is not surprising at all that the number of cases is increasing since testing at least has gone up at some rate. The number of reported cases is certainly increasing since deaths attributed to COVID tend to be a function of the number of reported cases because if you die from COVID, but you weren't tested or reported in some way. I'm not saying it can't be tracked back to COVID, but that's pretty tough to do. So that's why there's also a statistical decomposition problem as well. There's another challenge on attributing deaths to COVID, even of the reported cases and certainly unreported cases. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Eric, looking at these, these RT data, so the site is rt.live, by the way, rt.live. You're pointing out that comparing to two months ago, there's just many more states with this um, RT number above one, the, the great break point for RT. <clears throat> Happily, though, it does look like things have been relatively stable the last couple of weeks. So it was on this upward trend for a long time. But if you look back a month ago, or it was maybe even a little bit worse, two weeks ago, about the same. And so we're, we're kind of hoping for this thing to peak. And since various states have implemented new kind of shutdown measures or masks, there's some chance it might, it might peak and turn down, especially it used to be good if it happens before schools kick in. But I, I'm, I guess what I'm saying is one thing, I hadn't looked at the site in a while. I take your point on two months ago, for sure. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged by the fact that it seems like it's been a little flat the last week or two. Since you're looking at it, Kate, can you tell us which seven states, can I guess, are, 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 are less than one? Are they places where it's essentially been zero forever, like Alaska? Or is it uh, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Connecticut? It, I, I can't explain what connects these because they're vastly different. Maine, which might have been predictable. Mm -hmm. South Dakota and Utah, you might have predicted for a different reason. Here's a different one. Jersey. Delaware, Ohio, Arizona, Connecticut, and Washington. They're right at one and just below one. So New York is not at, one, at less than one? New York is a little bit above. It's about 14 states up from the bottom, just a little bit, ab a little that's bit a, above. That's a funny business because New York is, uh, I mean, they're looking at half percent positive rates. They have, you know, a yeah. few hundred cases a day, but, but they're yeah. that's down from you know um and i also and this i'll throw this into the wrench i just uh, i just talked with, with no, david just, RT, about. just to be clear audi rt yeah. in some sense would tell me something about let's say the ratio of this yes. week to last week it doesn't mean the absolute level could be a lot lower in new york but its rt value could be positive that's true but one. also you have to look at estimation error and when you're looking at thousands of cases rt becomes easily estimated with a pretty small confidence interval around the estimate, but when you're looking at tiny handfuls of cases, that RT yeah. estimate well, let is Let me say inflated. the following. Let me say the yeah. following to what you were saying, um, at least the, assuming the graphs I copied onto, um, the graphs I copied onto our, 
if you'd like Google Sheet that we use to prepare for the show, um, there is wideness. There's a lot of you know uncertainty in the confidence yeah. intervals. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, it's worth mentioning that basically the uncertainty intervals for all those, I count nine green states with RT less than one, the confidence intervals certainly cover values above one. Yeah, yeah. and similarly- and, and, and it's also worth noting that all but two states currently have, you know, even the, the red states where RT is above one, all yeah. but the most extreme of them also contain one. That's right, that's right. And they, they, they keep tracking these things and they're much more confident about RTs in the past. Yeah. than they are current RTs. You can see that in the standard errors. Guys, a couple other topics I want to hear you from on, uh, on, on COVID before we move on. Um, one is um, uh, vaccines. So I, increasingly, we're getting these reports of vaccines at ver- various stages. There are various trials. Um, the Lancet just reported one out of Oxford today, I think. Yeah. And it looks pretty good in stage one, stage two. I think this is the next big round of conversations. What What do you think, how should we prepare ourselves? How should we prepare others for interpreting these trial results? Because lots of different vaccines all over the country in various stages. It's a big media story. How can we consume this stuff in a more sophisticated way? Well, I can just speak for me since I'm, I'm, I'm not a skeptic. Do I believe eventually that a vaccine is going to come. Yes, I do. Here's the concern I have. And this is what they've said. They've been very clear. What stage one and stage stage one-ish can tell you about is, at least as so far, do there appear to be, at the doses they've given so far, any severe side effects from d- administering the dosage? So mm-hmm. far, it appears that the answer is no. So that's good. As I said at the administered dosage. Number two, are antibodies created? Absolutely. That's good. Matter of fact, it appears to be true in most of the people, if not everybody, they've tested. Now, let's be clear. They've tested healthy 18 to 55-year-olds. Now, yeah. the question is, is this drug going to be, have, what are the side effects going to be at the dosage level they have to give? How many antibodies will be created if people are already sick? Like, for example, if we believe that 10% of the people in the U.S., which are numbers I've heard, already have the coronavirus, so what happens to those 33 million people? Does the vaccine help for them at all? Number three, what, does the vaccine help for the elderly? And number four, um, does it give me one day of immunity? Like, how long do these antibodies, that's the biggest question I've heard, how long do these antibodies last for? Because as we know, even for people that have had the disease, we talked about this last week on the show, remember, the antibodies go down over time. Does that mean also that my protection goes down? So do I, am I going to have to get a shot every week, every two weeks? And let's not forget, we know the flu kills thirty to 50,000 people a year. And I've said this statistic a number of times, 43% of the people in the United States get a flu vaccine every year. So even if this vaccine existed, how many people would actually get it? So the sociology of it is going to be really interesting and a bit of a mess. I think there's no question about that. I, what, what, but we have between now and then, we have the science of it. And I think it's going to increasingly be part of the conversation. And we're going to need to bring it into the show and talk about it. And I, my, my biggest concern is that I'm curious how many drugs succeed at, at, at round one and two and then fail in round three. Because we get lots of green right. flags and lots of celebratory yeah. headlines right now on first and second phase. And I don't know how optimistic to be given. No, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, you know, I, I sort of, I mean, the question I sort of had at the get-go of this is that when people were kind of, you know, when 
when we were starting out, we didn't even have kind of candidate vaccines a few months ago. Everybody's talking about like, oh, well, it's going to be a year and a half, two years before we have a vaccine because, you know, and those are, those are values based on kind of historical norms of how long it takes to develop vaccines. It's pretty, un- un- I mean, I don't, I don't know how relevant those historical norms are to this case where, you know, like half of the world's scientific community seems to be working on this. Right. Um, but I also kind of, I, so I, as far as like kind of red flags for what to look at these particular studies and say like, how, how would I predict whether or not this is going to be kind of a successful transition is one of the red flags is kind of what you already mentioned. I think going to be a big part of our discussion for the next couple months is how representative in, in these early kind of trials, how representative of a population did they actually have participating in those trials? Yeah. Right. Again, as Eric pointed out, you know, I mean, if it's all just testing, you know, 18 to 25 year olds and observing no side effects that, that I mean, that's better than seeing side effects, obviously, but it doesn't necessarily give me much confidence that there's not going to be side effects or that the efficacy of it is going to be the same for kind of for, for the rest of the population. Yeah, but just remember, Shane, the key thing we have no data on right now is given you're exposed to somebody with COVID and you've gotten the vaccine, what's the probability you don't get COVID? Mm-hmm. That We have no data yeah. on that. That's not what's actually been tested. So no, far. that's right. That's right. No, it's, no, it's but just that's the whether or not probability. antibodies are produced. I will say, I, I will just kind of point out that, I mean, with every z- vaccine, with every vaccine, the polio vaccine, the measles vaccine, those antibodies, like once you get the vaccine, those antibodies don't exist in your bloodstream for the rest of your life. There's like, you know, there's a whole biological problem where there's T cells and it's stored, you know, there's a memory to your immune system that is, you know, allows you to have a heightened immune response to future exposures to a virus. Even if you do not currently have, you know, even if it like kind of the, the antibodies from that original vaccine don't, aren't in your bloodstream yeah. anymore. Since, look, since we're an analytics show, I can, we can talk about this. The stage one, forget the, let's forget the side effects for a second. Stage one is what you need to start with. What's the probability I generate antibodies given I'm given the drug? Mm-hmm. Now I need to know the yep. second probability is given I'm exposed to COVID and I've got generated the antibodies from this drug, what's the probability I get COVID? That's the natural logical step. And that is what phase two and three is. They're going to expose people to COVID that have gotten the- Are they actually doing the challenge? Are they actually doing challenge trials? They are. They are doing challenge. Because I'll just sort of just for historical reference for people listening, usually the way they do that phase three, they don't actually directly challenge people with this potentially deadly disease. It's seen as, you know- in most times, a little bit of questionable ethics. What they do is just give a certain number of people the 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 that 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 vaccine, and then they go out into their lives, and you look for rates, reduced rates in getting the vaccine from you know from kind of you know not direct expose not direct challenge exposure. So. I, I thought that I heard that they were going to be doing challenge trials for this. So we'll get get a little bit more who, of a quick and measured up, answer. Who signs up for a challenge trial, and what on what's and what's the inducement to do so? I so, thought I read like early on that there was a bunch of volunteers at Stanford, I believe, that like you know just essentially volunteered for it. I assume also dollars. I mean, Kay, there's yeah. all kinds of people that sign up for all kinds of, um, you know, it could also be I'll make this up, which is. I'm thinking about the possible negative side effects of being exposed to COVID and the vaccine, 
but I'm also weighing that against just the marginal probability I'm going to get it anyway, and I wouldn't have the vaccine. And so it could be that those people are saying, look, I'm on a high risk group anyway, and therefore the increase in probability to me is not that much. And these, these morons are paying me to take this. I was going to get mm-hmm. the thing anyway, probably. Uh, yeah, I, I understand that reasoning. I just don't know how sound it is, you know, and there's still the psychology of what do you take? What do you, what do you require to take a, say, 1% chance of dying? You know, mm-hmm. so maybe the case fatality rate isn't one anymore or, um, but you have to weigh that against, I'm going to give you this as opposed to you wander around the world and maybe you have a what? What yeah. chance of getting it in the world? I mean, it's not that big. It's, it's not big. a half, which it presumably would be in a challenge trial. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, guys, this is about the time that we have right now. Anything else top of mind for you? Something I want to come back to next time. We talked a little bit about herd immunity last time. I know you talked about it a few weeks ago when I wasn't on the show. I have and, an anecdote uh, if you want to hear it. Yeah, let's hear it. Immunity. So, uh, you know, there's a few um, very ultra-religious Orthodox Jewish communities around New York and New Jersey that got absolutely crushed very, very rapidly in the, in the early eight days when no one knew anything. And it was early March. Um, and they, they just got, you know, literally hundreds died and massive, massive infection. Jeez. Uh, one of these, I heard from one of these, one of these smallish communities in New Jersey, um, actually got permission from the health health authority. They're actually ac- operating completely normally right now. Camps, pools, schools, everything. Uh, they're insular in the sense they don't have very many people going in and out. And essentially they're operating uh, with, with the, under the presumption of herd immunity. Well, so have they gone past the presumption? Have they well, tested to figure well, out? Well, they've had massive serology tests and something like they 45% have, have had, uh, have had oh. the virus with the antibodies. Okay. Um, and then tack on the people who just don't get it. And right. um, so it's almost like a little experiment <laughs> um, happening. And we'll, we'll keep track of it. So I'll keep you posted. I don't know anyone directly there, but I have some indirect contacts. Um, so, so far, it was surprising to me when I heard that they were doing this. Um, but... Um, there might be, I mean, I don't think anybody wants to get to that point. That's the problem. Right. Well, this, we, we, we don't have time to go into it right now, but it is something to take up more because, again, this is an increasingly relevant question. What is the actual break point for the virus? And some people have proposed that herd immunity is too high a standard, that there's a break point much lower than that um, because of the way we spread things. So, for example, the herd immunity models tend to presume homogeneity in the population. And since we know it's, we're wildly not homogeneous, it turns out that this heterogeneity provides a lot of dead ends for the virus. Mm-hmm. And so your, the, the, the break point, essentially, the quote break point is something perhaps significantly below the actual herd immunity number. Yeah, I was going to comment on this is kind of what network structure and network theorists yeah. study, right? Like imagine this very simple network. Instead of like a fully connected network, imagine what's called a barbell network where in some sense, once it goes into a group, it's very likely to leave that group because that group is just very sparsely connected with another group. So I agree with you, Cade. It would be a great thing for our network theorist colleagues to study. That's great. Um, all right, we'll come, back on, we'll come back to that topic and we'll come back to this show after the break. Come back. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Got the whole crew. We are virtual, but we've got the whole crew here. Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen. This is Cade Massey rolling out of the top of the show, talking about coronavirus in the abstract. Now let's talk about sports and coronavirus in the second half of the show. Gentlemen, what in the last week has caught your eye in the world of sports? 
Well, one thing that kind of obviously that I was kind of following on social media over the weekend is there's a big kind of uh, essentially like, you know, like a group, uh, coordinated um, tweeting and, 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 and messaging from a lot of the uh, prominent NFL players, you know, with the hashtag we want to play essentially that that was expressing frustration mostly at the at the league's, you know, by their perspective, blase attitude towards, you know, how the season's going to go and, and, and at least compared to other leagues, somewhat like, you know, you know, slow response basically and, and planning. Well, they have had four months since yeah. the NBA day canceled their season. And while the NHL and NBA put together very complicated and MLB complicated ways to navigate this thing, NFL hasn't seemed to do very much. And so you can't complain much about these guys protesting. Also, they've gotten huge money on the line, right? They mm-hmm. get the guaranteed contracts that these guys have, a, go away if they don't play the season. It's it's this weird thing where they they they've got the, the NFL has a huge incentive to if they play a single game all the money kicks in. If they don't play a game they get to scoot some money. And so the 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 the, the owners are in this weird place of oh, they don't want a, they don't want a partial season because they have to pay a lot of money for not much revenue. But they'll is that worth you know trying to get around the whole thing. So anyways, it, they, one of the nice developments in the last hour is that they've announced a testing protocol. So there was mm-hmm. a, there was a disagreement between the players association and the NFL on how often they want to test. The NFL doesn't want to test every day. The players do. And so they said, compromise, we're going to test every day for two weeks. And then we're going to, if the rates, the, the positive rate falls below 5%, we're going to write, we're going to knock it back to every other day. So it's a good little compromise. Um, and that's going to help, but now they still have to figure out, they still have to figure out the money. Yeah, um, no. And I mean, I just, again, I'll say that, that I mean, I, I am very happy that they compromised. Um, I will say that that compromise again from I, the players have a lot of argue, a very strong argument. Cause you know, that compromise is well short of what a lot of the other leagues are even doing. The NHL is going to test every single day mm-hmm. and, and they also are going to be doing their entire operation in more of a kind of isolated bubble scenario as well. Right. You know, when you hear the details of what these guys are doing, it's like they, they can, I think it's something like you can approve 50 extra people to be involved, to be around the players, to be in the building. That's right. Yeah. Each player basically, yeah. or each team can, yeah, that's right. Aren't that's you a little worried about number. false positives? Because there's a, I just, you know, it, no one knows exactly what the rate is, but it's at least one in a thousand. Um, and used in this context, you're going to just generate false positives well, if you're testing no, every, every other day, day. You, I, yeah. if you're testing every day, uh, yeah. you're not your false positives aren't exactly going to maintain themselves. No, I know, right? but what what do you do when you get a positive? That's my my question. Are you, is it just put them in? What happens to a person who tests positive? Do they have to leave? Does I, and I don't know if they down? actually I mean, like I to, other sports where they're giving them a second test. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Them. Yeah, I think they're probably in, in cases of positives, especially because the rate, you know. Hopefully, hopefully the rates will be, you know, it won't be that. But I also have to, to wonder, you know, we know all about batch testing and this seems like, this seems like perfect place to do batch testing. The whole, everybody in a single team should just get thrown into maybe two batches, one batch, whatever the, whatever the statistics are. And if the whole thing is negative, you're done. That's right. And I mean, again, you know, it's, I don't even know if that's potentially part even of their kind of process for getting these 2000 mm-hmm. or so tests however many they're doing daily you know done in a kind of time efficient way you mlb seems to be struggling at least in these kind of early days with doing as many tests as they want to do like actually right. getting the results back from these tests that they're doing 
in, in, in kind of reasonable times. And batch testing would be kind of a great part of their procedure. So we've heard talk about this for months, really. And we've heard a little bit of talk recently about the FDA approving it. Um, some of the parameters matter. I think that if you have to have a sufficiently small um, rate. Yeah. rate for it to make sense. And I think we're in that territory. And when it gets a little more prevalent, it doesn't make as much sense. Yeah. And, you, and there are calculations on the optimal batch size. I think, I think it's something like, I don't know, for some of the rates we're in, I think it may not be a whole lot bigger than 10. Because mm -hmm. if you, you're going to get so many positives in a group of 100 that you're going to lose some of the efficiencies. So I don't understand why we've been so slow to go this direction. It's, it's confusing to me. It's one of the many mysteries of pandemic response that we just, it doesn't seem like it's caught on, even though. You just got to start associating the word slow and testing together. You know, it's just. That's it, a, that every, every single thing, every single we do aspect of testing that we have that's been discussed over i mean have we have we used the word testing and the words you know without the word slow in a sentence in the last four months can i just say i mean the united states um capacity for innovation is great and this is sort of competitive environment but this competitive environment and lack of oversight and lack of infrastructure and and leadership is a disaster and I, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't want to get on a, you know, a political rant, but this system, we know, I just how does an individual pharma company or a, a baseball team have to make a decision like this? Really? This should be done at a much higher level. And, in, and, in, and I just, our systems for getting these things done are just not working. Well, it's a, the, the logic of it might work very well for innovation over a longer period of time. As many, mm -hmm. many different entrants working independently is kind of ideal right. for generating new ideas over a longer period of time. But in the meantime, there may be some consequences. And that's, that's unfortunate. That's I, I was kind of hopeful that one of the sports leagues would innovate on the testing in a way that might be helpful. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure we're gonna see that. So uh, the college football is, you know, college football is uh, football across the board is like, it's been it's like the month of reckoning. It's like, okay, did we do anything to get it going? Are we going to be able to pull this off? Now people are talking more seriously about a spring season for college football. Um, one of the concerns with that that I've heard raised is the the cost the universities will have to bear to keep everything going with no promise that it will be okay in the spring. So the safer thing to do in some sense is to call it, say, no, we're not going to do it this year. We're not going to bear the cost. We're just going to wait a year because mm -hmm. there's this risk that they kind of puts along, keep on bearing some costs, and then they're not able to do it in the spring. But it's just such a messy landscape. Um, it, it, it really in flux right now on the college side. Okay, that's football. It's so not encouraging. What about other sports? We had some sports. We had some – well, actually, guys, we've got your sport arriving, like, I don't know, this week. Yes. Thursday. Day after Thursday. the same post. Opening day of baseball. I'm salivating. I can't can't wait for an actual baseball game without fans, but there it'll be. So tell me about that as a as a hardcore baseball fan. Is it going to feel that way, even though it's been delayed, even though it's part of a shortened season at best, without fans in the middle of July? How's it going to feel watching that game? It's going to feel like ending a fast. Yeah, no, it's gonna. I, I I'm. It's gonna feel delightful, at least to me. I mean, I know. I, I feel like Eric and I maybe disagreed a little bit on you know, this last week or the week before we were discussing it. But even though it's kind of a weird, like it's a silly season, it's going to be always have an asterisk associated with it, you know, in terms of historical comparisons. I'm just delighted to have baseball back. And, you know, I'm almost kind of excited for the kind of silliness, silly and randomness of it that will probably incur just from it being in such a shortened season. Hopefully not shortened any more than it is currently planned. 
All I can say is I'm from a fan perspective, I'm glad it's only a 60 game season because I think without fans there, I think the interest, even if they could play 162 with fans, I don't think it would work well. I think uh, 60 will generate, there'll be enough, things will start to decline. In other words, there'll be a hump in the middle where people will be like, oh, another baseball game with no fans in it. You know, it's not that exciting, everything else. I think it'll pick up near the end, you know, just to see who makes the playoffs kind of thing. But this way, no fans, less interest goes well with a shorter season. So I'm excited mm-hmm. about that. Also, for many of us, at least I can speak for myself, I watch baseball a lot without sound anyway. Um, because I can tell what the announcers are going to say. I can see what's going on on the field. I can get work done more easily and multitask while watching baseball. So having the sound off versus no fans. And also, I'm used to watching Yankee games where there's nobody in the bottom five rows on the screen anyway. Right behind home plate. to pay $18,000 or whatever it is for a ticket. So I'm used to people with – I'm used to watching games with no fans on the screen. I mean, Eric, you can't listen to volume on your sports shows because you're watching three or four at the same time, right? (laughs) (laughs) Which one to watch to have sound on it? It's so complicated. It's so complicated to flip the audio around like that. No, you're bringing up an important point. It's not for this Thursday because baseball is the only game in town. But from August 1st onwards, there's going to be baseball, NBA, and NHL all going on at the same time. Yeah, baseball merely missed the boat on this. They should have been playing much earlier than they they did, and they would have an opportunity to be the only sport for where there's nothing on. I mean, aren't you getting tired of Netflix by now? It just seems, you know, uh, it's it's it's. I'm looking forward to baseball more than anything. I actually listen to a lot of radio. and so I won't miss the, the, the images of the sound. nothing less from a purist like you, Adi. I take my baseball the way it was meant to be, on the radio. <laughs> on the radio. Well, you know, I have, a, I have a nice new puppy we've had for a year now. He's great to get, go for on a walk <laughs> and listen to the game. I know they're going to be broadcasting fake um, sa- uh, sound of yeah. fans. Are they really? Yeah, I was, yeah. I was kind of wondering by that, uh, whether they were going to plan on doing that. I, I mean, I was kind of, intr- you know, I mean, I, I hope that they don't go crazy with the levels of let. I hope they don't do the New Orleans Saints of like, you know, crowd noises or something like that. Because mm-hmm. um, I was actually a little bit intrigued I, to hear a little bit more of the game. I mean, those yeah. the crack of the bat and all the like, you know, player just, I mean, you could imagine a situation where, um you know, you can hear a little bit more player conversations and stuff like that if there yeah. actually wasn't like crowd noise being piped right. in. Though I understand the kind of, for, to make it more feel like a competitive baseball game, I can understand the crowd noise a bit. So I want to relate what we're seeing in baseball to the, to the predictions for the over-unders. And let me say why I'm saying this. So the Yankees and the, and the Dodgers are both predicted roughly at 38 wins. The Dodgers are at 38, the Yankees are at 37 and a half, which is about a 102 win pace. Let me say why I'm going to bet the under, not just because of mean reversion, but there's another reason. I think what you're going to see is you're going to see a mixture distribution. And what I mean by that is over those 60 games, it might take us 15 to 20 games for the real Yankees or the real Dodgers to kick in. They had the length of spring training that they're normally used to. Mm -hmm. I think already the start of the season can be very different. So you can imagine, let's even imagine it takes 10 games Let's say the Yankees go five and five in the first 10 games. Well, they're going to have to win 32 and a half out of 50 of the remaining games, which is, you know, a 670, it was like a 650 pace. Now, all of a sudden, they're on, they have to win at the pace of 105, 106 win yeah. team. 
So yeah. I think these are, I think just in some sense, the way they've kind of linearized it, like 162 is to 60, the way 103 is to 38. I think it's crazy. <laughs> now you should kind of, to, to whatever, uh, you know, to whatever team you kind of attribute the max win totals um, in this shortened season, I, I assume we can agree that that team would be the Yankees in the AL and the Dodgers in the NL. Yes. Um, I don't think that's a controversial statement. Um, but you should shrink them that much more because of that extra, the kind of extra variability yeah, that this, like you know, well, kind of shortened schedule adds in. I think what, what Eric is describing, if I had to write it out mathematically, most people like to think of a team's uh, expected wins, a parameter called that theta for a team. And that would be, say, 650 for a great, great team over the entire season. But that's not actually how it plays out. That in the beginning, it's a different theta. And over time, they, they converge on something. And that what Larrick is saying is that the average is theta for the season, but it's actually much smaller or shrunk much harder in the beginning where they kind of straighten things out. Right. And that if you actually use the right proportions, you get a much smaller number. So that's a very convincing argument, uh, Eric. I, I like it. And uh, I don't think I'm going to bet on it, but uh, just reluctance yeah. to bet against the Yankees. I mean, it's small consolation to me. I meant the who, Dodgers, Adi. I'm not yeah, Yankees. Of I'm taking the over. I meant the Dodgers, not the it's not. It's kind of a small consolation to me. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at a, a situation where the Yankees are very, very clear favorites to win the AL. Um, and it's somewhat of a small consolation to me that, you know, there may, may be slightly less favorites just with this shortened structure, but I mean, they still are going. Well, when you relate to that, Shane, does it, yeah. I mean, I put this up on our listing as well. To win the AL, the Yanks are minus 300 and the Red Sox are plus 900. I don't get it. You don't get it? It's too, too extreme. Too extreme. Too extreme. Too extreme. Way too extreme. With a short season, everything yeah. should be pushed to I, a half. Yeah, I, the Yankees I, I, are that. Well, that's not, I, I mean, people, come on. I mean, yes. Again, I, I'm all for shrinking more because of a shortened season, but the probability should not approach a half. A half. You know, no, no, no. I don't mean a half. I mean one over. The Yankees are, are are looking. You know, at least back back in like March, the Yankees were looking like a historically dominant team. They were like one. You know, a couple pitches away from the World Series. And the team they lost to, they grabbed the best player on. Well, let me ask you a question, though, Shane. Let me, I agree with that, but Shane, let me ask you a question. If I, you like the Red Sox, I like the Yankees. What odds would I have to give you right now to take the Red Sox over the Yankees? Like if, let's say we're going to bet 100 bucks. Would you do it at 5-1 to one odds? Yeah, 5-1. to one. All right, but yeah. that's not minus 300. No, no, no. I, I guess I'm not, I'm not, I'm not re, I, I, you know, I, 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 I didn't react strongly to the idea that these odds are kind of misplaced because again, don't think that they are doing the extra amount of shrinkage you should do for like the shortened season, what we've been discussing. I just would not shrink them so much that, yeah, I mean, I think the Yankees still have a sizable probability advantages as far as you know winning the al east goes but minus 300 minus 300 just convert that that's three quarters that's 75 percent chance yeah that is too high because there's other teams in the al east too but um, speaking of which speaking of which one other issue on baseball i want to touch on the the canadian government kicked the jays out yeah of their of their stadium of sky dome so they can't play baseball up there how does this affect them? And do you think they're going to end up in Buffalo or down in their spring training facility? The latest, uh, the latest uh, proposal I heard is Pittsburgh, actually. Pittsburgh is considering hosting them what? as well. Wait, don't they have a team already? Yeah, well, they, they, they do, but I kind of feel like they did somehow be able to coordinate two teams in one stadium. That's, I, meant to be com- I mean, to be comical. Especially without fans, I have to like, get in and out. <laughs> I mean, to be comical here, Kate. Um, the Blue Jays can play in Toronto. Just no teams from the U.S. can go visit them and play there. Yeah, right, right, yeah. right. So... Uh, 
it's, it's one of the more extreme consequences we've seen yet. And especially, I think it's almost like the Canadian government just kind of sticking it to the Americans. They, they like to point out the superiority well, we of the- And it could be a statement on, because the Canadian government has spent the last like two months negotiating very strongly with the NHL about what they're going to do. And, you know, that's been, you know, that's been a very careful kind of plan that the NHL has come up with. Right. And- Obviously, MLB is proposing an entire structure that's very different and not nearly as careful. I just want to ask people a question. The base, I don't know when the Blue Jays' first home game is, but unless I've been busy today, unless it was announced during the day-to-day, they may be playing a home game in four, five, six days, and we don't know where they're playing. That's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. It is. Unprecedented times. And all, all across the board. This. I mean, on, you know, on, on, honestly, I mean, I, I know there's a game scheduled for like Thursday, but I'm not confident, you know, there'll be games again on Sunday in this right. season. Well, let me also well, bring up another related, which is an intersection between COVID and uh, baseball. Since we've been on baseball, I saw something which, you know, Clint Frazier on the Yankees has announced that he's going to play every game with his mask on. Mm-hmm. And there, I, I, my prediction is he won't be the only player. No, I think Didi Gregorius, I, th- I think I saw, was at least he w- was considering it as well. And certainly has been practicing throughout in a mask. Are they using what? these, uh, these uh, kind of like uh, um, expanded pieces of, uh, of uh, shirt that kind of come up over their face? Is it, uh... No, no, no. No, it, it's, it's a more complicated. There, there's, there's really kind of nice masks that allow, apparently uh-huh. allow you to kind of like have more heavy exertion but still mm-hmm. not have it as, as impeded. How does that strike you? So one, I want to say, look, they should be able to do whatever the hell want to, for sure. I mean, they're taking great risks to provide entertainment for the rest of us. Now they're paid, but still. But on the other hand, it seems a little silly, especially in baseball, unless I'm the first baseman chatting up everyone who comes and sits on the on first base. Well, what about while, the I'm time you're worried about it. What about the time you're in the dugout? Okay, good point. Dugout, yeah, maybe I'd wear a mask in the dugout because those guys are right next to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Okay. You know, I think, I think what's going to be interesting is as data starts to pour in. I mean, I heard just recently um, uh, negligible. Once they got everyone intake, the, the, uh, there, there were problems in the beginning. A lot of the players were positive before they even got to, to camp. Once they, were, once they excluded their quarantines, the ones that were positive, left everyone be. Um, the, the additional positive rate is minuscule right now. I mean, really, really small. There were five days, I think, recently that there were no positives. There might be – and, again, there's false positives. So, I guess we have to, they have to re, be retested before you, you know it's a real positive. So, let's, let's watch. I mean, I would imagine – I don't know whether this becomes a, a, a statement, but if, if it goes south, then we know what happens. But what, let's let's be optimistic for maybe for once. I just um, want to be clear on something. Yeah, I just thought, when those yeah. teams are. I just want to be clear. When a team is playing its home games, are the players staying at their homes? I believe they are. Yeah. Yeah. You see, that to me is the greatest source. No, of- they're not, that, that's right. I mean, like right now, where they're kind of doing their summer training, they are relatively bubbled. And yeah, yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad that's going well. Don't get me wrong. And I and I. I I think I generally am an optimist, but like in this case, I, I mean, they're going to be exiting that bubble situation. Yeah, I'm much more go, confident about basketball or hockey because they're maintaining the bubble for the entire length. Yeah, of when the they enterprise. go to Texas and Florida and Arizona, where where, yeah, let's talk. Let's talk about another sport, another bubble, and um, let's push your optimism a little bit. I hear that um, Shake Milton is going to start point guard, point guard for the Sixers. Is that is that a good development, Eric? I hear that Al Horford and all of the money he's being paid is not going to start. What's going on with the Sixers? Well, I, I just like to play the counterfactual, which again, so 
You have Ben Simmons, who we know can't shoot, but obviously a great player in a lot of dimensions. He's now going to be played at the power forward position. Al Horford with the Sixers, who's 30, he's 34 years old. The Sixers shot into a four-year, $97 million contract. Let's remember, in basketball, everything's guaranteed. They, they got him to play the four. Well, he's now going to be the backup center to Joel Embiid, who plays 35 minutes a game. They've already determined the plus-minus with Embiid and Horford and Simmons on the court together is like minus $10 trillion. And so, because you got Horford who really can't shoot. I get a decimal place on that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the as standard hour bars do not include zero. And so, <laughs> you now have $97 million locked up in Horford, who's not really going to play. Shake Milton is fine. I mean, he's a 45% three-point shooter. That's good. But he takes, like, two shots a game. I mean, how many shots are they going to give him when Tobias Harris wants to shoot every shot and Bede wants to shoot every shot? So that's your starting guard. And I just bring up the counterfactual. If they hadn't made the trade for Markel Fultz, the number one pick, let's remember they had the number three pick, which ended up being Jason Tatum. He's pretty good for the Celtics. And they would have had the Sacramento Kings unprotected number one pick. So they traded the three and the Kings pick to get Markel Fultz, who's now on the Orlando Magic. So, you know, this to me has been a franchise. We're lucky we got Simmons and we're lucky we got Embiid, but this franchise has blown its drafting. It's not done a very good job. So yeah, it seems like it they're seems not like completing they've... the process the way it was envisioned. Not only, also, remind me of the Duke guy that they ended up trading away. What was his name? The guy they also took with like the number one or two pick. The big guy. The, the, okay. the, oh. the guy that was on Duke. <laughs> oh, Okafor. Yeah, Okafor, that yeah. was another awful pick. So, yeah. I mean, if you think uh, about the number of top five picks they've had, they, they've not really well, done so particularly you're, you're, well. You're, you're smearing a lot of different regimes at this point. I mean, so Okafor goes all the way back to Sam, I think. And then the Horford signing, the way you just described the role he's going to play, it makes the whole signing mysterious. Why would you pay that much, and especially for an older guy in that longer contract, if – the plus minus looks so bad if he's in the starting lineup. I mean, so he was a real contributor for Boston and they, they played him head to head many times. And so they had a real good sense of what he was. It's just mysterious that they would sign that make that big a contract and then not play him in the starting so what would lineup. Make, what would make that happen? One could be that one theory is that he's great at the five, not at the four. That's one theory. Another theory could be um, they've forgotten that there's a big cliff between a 34-year-old, a 33-year-old, and a 34- and 5-year-old. So maybe the year and a half does make a big difference. That's another possibility. It could also just be the interaction between him and the other players. Right. You know, by the way, this is always a good reminder on the longevity curves that there's not a known cliff. And there's not also a steady decline. It's that everyone has a cliff somewhere, and you just don't know where it's going to be. And, and you don't want to be contracted with a guy when you run into his cliff. Cause. And I think the thought also is, you know, as, as Kareem, I remember just quickly, 10 seconds, remember when they were both like 50 years old and Kareem played Dr. J. They had these series of one-on-one matchups and Kareem destroyed Dr. J. And they asked Kareem, you know, why are you so much better? And he goes, you can't teach height. Uh-huh. And height doesn't go away. I'm still seven foot two and Dr. J's still six foot six. Yeah, he's not as athletic. I'm not as athletic, but I'm seven two and he's six six. Uh-huh. Well, the same thing may be the falsehood of, of big men. Orford's still six eleven, but he's just thirty-five and six eleven. Yeah. So fellas, we're down to the last minute. I want to hear I want to hear your take on the the one sport that's been kind of getting it done on a regular basis, and that's golf. They had a they had a uh, controversial, almost dramatic uh, end to the, to the tournament, but also Tiger Woods showed up and didn't play terrifically well. Any updates on the golf front? Well, 
again, it's back to the health of Tiger Woods. It was clear in his second round where he shot 76 that he basically couldn't turn on the ball. He couldn't fully turn, so he was leaving everything out to the right, which is what you'd expect. He even said his health isn't great. He's going to have more hit days than miss days. And then question is, can he play four good days in a row to win a major tournament? And then quickly, John Rahm won the tournament. He's now the number one player in the world. Um, the quote-unquote controversy was on the 16th hole. He chipped one in from the heavy rough which for a birdie, which was great. Problem is, under super slow-mo camera, they showed that the ball oscillated and moved, and therefore that's a two-stroke penalty. Now, it turns out they did give him the two-stroke penalty. He still won the tournament by three strokes. Um, but it was, again, this idea of what's the role of super slow-mo cameras in replays? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's nice that something like if, – if it happened and happened to the leader, it didn't actually cost him the turn. Well, I remember – Are we going to get to a point where we, we – uh, if you're, it's a match play, you get to throw a challenge flag if you don't like your uh, opponent's shot? There you go. All right, guys. That has been another Wharton Moneyball. We do this every week. During the pandemic, we're doing it virtually on Zoom. We're glad you could join us for the whole team here. Audi Weiner, who's doing a lot of work these days. The rest of us are just putts along in the summer. Audi's on – doing lots of teaching eric bradlow and shane jensen maddie d our producer boss man thank you guys for listening we'll be back next week between now and then enjoy your sports you're listening to wharton moneyball on business radio welcome back to wharton moneyball I'm Professor Adi Weiner of the Wharton School of Business, Department of Statistics of the University of Pennsylvania, and I'm joined here um, remotely with David Fagenbaum, um, also a professor at the University of Pennsylvania in the School of Medicine, and welcome to our show this morning, this afternoon, I'm not sure what time it is. Uh, David, good to have you. Adi, it's great to be on. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, and David, just as a, by way of a little bit of background for those of you who don't know David, uh, David, of course, is a professor here. He is also a, do- he's a doctor um, and he also has a degree from the business school. Are there any other, other degrees other than undergraduate degrees that you have lurking around that I don't know about? I went to grad school in England, so I have an extra one of those degrees, too. <laughs> you, have, you have another master's um, from England. I should know that, too. Um, he's, uh, he's the author of a book called Chasing My Cure. Um, and, and it is an amazing book, which I read almost, I just, you know, just basically just gobbled it up in about a, in a two hours, three hours sitting, um, after, you know, having a conversation with David at a workshop here at the university. And I just was looking him up on the, on the web, just looking for his email. I'm like, Oh, he wrote this book and I grabbed it. And it, it's an, it's a very, it's an amazingly fascinating book and an incredible story. Um, so I, I'll let you kind of tell it a little bit yourself, um, but I'm going to give you the background before. So David, you were a, you were a, um, you grew up in uh, which what part of the country? Raleigh, North Carolina. Ra- Raleigh, North Carolina, down south. Although your your family is, I think, from Trinidad, isn't that even further south? Yeah, they're from Trinidad in the Caribbean. That's right. In the Caribbean, that's right. You don't find too many David Fagenbaums from Trinidad in the Caribbean, as I'll point out. That's a, that's, that's a, right. a that's a Polish name if I know it. Polish that's Jewish right. name if I know it correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so your background is from, from and you were a football player. So this is Wharton Moneyball, and we're going to talk about David's expertise, which is in medicine. But we got to spend a few moments figuring out how you became a, a football player. And you played Division One football for Georgetown, so right. so you know you were an athlete. Um, and, but so so tell me about uh, those choices. Sure. So I think it, you would agree that um, uh, 
doing well in sports is really all about focus. And when I was a kid, I was just locked in. All I could think about was this dream of one day playing college football. And that's all I did all day, every day was working on getting towards that dream of playing college football and um, had some injuries in in high school, ended up uh, breaking my collarbone at one point uh, and just being so thankful that I was able to finish out my senior year and get the opportunity to go to Georgetown um, to play. I I was a quarterback and um, had, like I said, always dreamed uh, of playing division one football. And uh, yeah, so I, I got to Georgetown and it was, like I said, it had been this kind of lifelong dream. And then for me, everything changed because within just a couple of weeks of getting to campus and starting a preseason uh, football camp uh, is when my, I found out my mom was diagnosed with brain cancer. And that just basically completely flipped my world upside down. I went from like, my life's all about football to, oh my gosh, I want to spend my life chasing after diseases. That's amazing. So you went from being, um, you were a a quarterback at a college football division one college football program. And then when your mom got diagnosed as, as, as with uh, brain cancer, you totally trained your focus to wanting to look for cures for diseases. That's I, I talked to offline. I mean, uh, David and I have one thing in common, not a good thing. Both of our parents got diagnosed with cancer that turned out to be fatal while we were in college. I, I wasn't, uh, um, that didn't change my career path though, <laughs> whatsoever. Um, I somehow just, it was not in my radar. It's amazing how you went. And were you ever interested in biology science? Were those things that were you were interested in? Already? I was interested in sports medicine. I thought that, you know, I was, it was I kind see. of a combination between biology and, and my love for sports. But um, for me, once, once she was diagnosed, it was like, I just had like a 180 and was just like, this is, this is what I want to do. I know you, you talk about it in your book and it's probably one of the more, more unheralded things that you you'd have done in your life. And that's a testimony to the things you've done. But I was particularly moved by the organization you started when you were in college, which, which something which I certainly would have appreciated being part of if, um, if that had existed. Um, what, tell us about that organization. Sure. It's called AMF. Uh, my mom's name was Anne-Marie Fagenbaum. Her initials were AMF. And so I started this organization in her memory um, to connect grieving college students to, su- to support one another. As, as you unfortunately know, losing a loved one during college is, is really tough, mainly because you feel so alone. And so we, we, we try to fix that. And, and what's really cool is that AMF still exists more than 15 yeah. years later. I'm no longer involved with AMF. Uh-huh. Most people don't even know AMF. Probably even, they probably don't even know if, that it stands for my mom's initials, but it's still helping people around the country. Incredible. And it's, that's in your book as well. But the real thing that, that most people think of, which is the chasing my cure. Well, I, I gotta, I'm, before we get to this, I got to point this thing out. The thing that really you know, struck me in, the, in, uh, in, in David's biography is that he won a bench press competition. <laughs> I think when you were in college or high school. And, and he, well, it, you just get a load of this, right? He was able to bench 375 pounds. And I'm looking at David right now and you're thinking, no way. No way. No way. I remember in college, one of my friends in college was an offensive lineman. And this guy was the biggest thing on earth. And he couldn't bench 375 pounds. So just give me a, just give us a, can you give me a sense of the residual? Let's talk stat here. Um, What is a typical amount of the people your size can bench? and, and, And how many standard deviations above average were you? So as a quarterback, um, the typical max bench would be somewhere maybe like 250, 275. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, that's a number of standard deviations above the typical quarterback. Um, But certainly, you know, offensive linemen, linebackers, those those guys are are, are all in that sort of a realm um, when, when you're in Division One, but it's certainly unusual um, for a quarterback. I, I remember we, we scrimmaged Maryland every summer. Um, we'd do seven-on-seven seven scrimmages against them, and I do, I do remember the linebackers from Maryland being like, 
is this dude a quarterback? Well, you know, what is this guy doing? Um, <laughs> I, I didn't look like most quarterbacks. Yeah, and that's just a fun fact here for our group before we go on to what really makes, really brought you to just Penn and really brought you to the career you have. Now, I know you came to Penn as, 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 to go to medical school. So you had, you had graduated from college. You went to, I guess, where you're at Oxford for a year. That's right. Um, and then you and then you went to Penn just to, to yes many people come to a great world class medical school to to, to be, become a doctor, um, right. but it was while you were a doctor that things really went south. So tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, I was a third year med student, so I was finally in the hospital treating patients. Um, finally, kind of putting all of my years of training um, to work, and out of nowhere, I just started feeling more tired than I'd ever felt before. And pretty soon the fatigue got worse and worse. And I started noticing like lumps in my neck that I didn't know what they were and fluid around my ankles. And, and I was still in like tip top shape. And so I didn't know what was going on. And eventually after several weeks of that, I took a medical school exam and then I went down the hall to the emergency department and, and I felt, I felt awful. Um, and when they took my, my blood, they said, David, your liver, your kidneys and your bone marrow are shutting down. We have to hospitalize you right away. And it was just such a, a shock. But yeah. unfortunately, over the next few days, I just got more and more ill. I had a retinal hemorrhage that made me blind in my left eye. I gained 70 pounds of fluid because my kidneys and liver shut down. And I was so sick, Addy, that as, as you know, after 11 weeks of this, I was eventually read my last rites because the doctors didn't think I would survive. Unbelievable. And I have to say, uh, David, you, you make it very vivid in the book, but this didn't only happen once. And it turned yeah. out, I mean, there's a lot of medical stuff that I don't understand, um, but for the most part, it was chemotherapy that allowed That's you right. to make at least a, a, uh, a brief recovery, right? Because they kind of treated it like, sort of, in, you had an overactive immune response. That's essentially what I understand. Right. And then later, later, it was sometime later that it was actually diagnosed as Castleman's disease, um, which I looked up, um, you mentioned it, it's, it's uh, about five 5,000 cases a year, yeah. um, which is uh, rare, but not astoundingly rare, I would say, right? So, so right. it's the kind of thing, is it the kind of thing that doctors are um, in their careers see a few times or do they see a few times a year? Where, where would you place it in terms of the, the rarity quotient? So the typical doctor will see it a few times in their career. If you're a hematologist and so you treat blood cancers and, mm -hmm. and diseases like that, you'll see a few a year. But yeah, it's rare. I mean, I think it you know, my journey with Castleman disease, I think does highlight that there actually are 7,000 rare diseases that affect 30 million Americans. So though all 7,000 of our diseases are rare, when you combine them together, one in 10 people have one of these many rare diseases. Mm -hmm. So Castleman's disease was, it took some time to get diagnosed. They treat it like it's a, like it's a cancer with chemotherapy because I guess it beats back. Maybe you can tell me exactly the biological process that it's beating back. Um, but I want to get, talk about this because we're going to segue into COVID. Um, and one of the reasons why COVID-19 is particularly destructive is that you, you mount a, a, an overactive immune response, the so-called so cytokine storm. And that's similar to, to, uh, to what happened to you with, with, um, with Castleman's disease. Can you explain that a little bit? That's exactly right. So I have what's called idiopathic multicentric Castleman's disease. Idiopathic means we don't know what's causing it. So yeah. my immune system just out of nowhere will just become hyperactivated. And then instead of your immune system is supposed to protect you from bad things like viruses, like COVID. Um, but 
unfortunately, uh, the tools that it uses to fight off viruses and bacteria and things like that, those same tools and weapons can cause massive harm to the body, um, especially when they're at very elevated levels. So like when I get sick with Castleman disease, my immune system attacks my organs and shuts down my liver, my, my kidneys, my bone marrow. And so um, what it highlights is that your immune system, which is supposed to be there to do good for you and protect you, can actually do harm. And just as you said, uh, with COVID-19, we actually see the most sick patients, the people who, who die or nearly die from COVID-19, it's actually a hyperactivation of the immune system. So what's supposed to be protecting you from the virus actually starts causing harm. And as a result, there's a lot of overlap between the two diseases. So tell me, um, why, why does chemotherapy, why did chemotherapy work to at least um, prolong your, Ill, uh, your life and, and roll back some of the bad effects during your many, many, I think there were at least five, five kind yeah. of incidences of, of practically dying from, 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 from Castleman. So why does chemotherapy work? It works because it kills rapidly dividing cells and your immune cells are some of the most rapidly dividing cells in your body. So, um, so it's basically, if you don't know what to target, like if you don't know it's this particular cell type to target, if you just give massive doses of chemotherapy, you basically just kill all immune cells and then you or you're likely to kill the problems if you kill everything. It's kind of like, instead of taking out one bad person in a city, you just drop a nuclear bomb and you, you're pretty sure you're going get, to get rid of the one bad person. Okay, so and that and that kind of worked. And so, uh, from your biography, your your memoir, you, yeah. this happened five times, and each time you were at the brink of death, and each time you managed to get a uh, a, a survival, pull yourself back through this chemotherapy, which is tough to survive because it's it's hugely damaging. You know, you're Absolutely. it's like Gallipoli; you just throw everybody out there and hope hope somebody something wor- sticks. Um, but you managed five times, but it wasn't looking like any better. But, but before, actually, we're going to come back to your, 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 your solution because it does re- very much relate to your work now in COVID. But let me just, uh, just take a brief digression here. If chemotherapy kind of at least staved off your hyperactive immune response for Castellan's disease, is there anything like that for COVID? I mean, is, this, is chemotherapy being thought of as a treatment to a hyperactive immune system from COVID-19? There are, so in COVID, there are a few drugs that are being used that target the immune system specifically that are considered chemotherapies. They're not the chemotherapies that maybe you and I might initially think of the kind that makes you bald, that kills everything, because you really don't want to wipe out the whole immune system. But there are aspects of the immune system that we know in COVID seem to be hyperactivated. And so the drugs that are being used, the chemotherapies that are being used are directed at those particular aspects of the immune system because you don't want to knock the whole thing out. You want to have you want to have the good parts control the virus, and you want to knock out the bad parts. All right, so we're going to get to some of that in a minute. Let's just take you through the story. So you're in medical school, you're in and out of the hospital, in and out of medical school. Then there's somehow you didn't you didn't even just describe it. The next thing I know, you're at Wharton. <laughs> you're getting your MBA, and I actually probably wasn't teaching the MBA during that time, or otherwise we might have actually gotten got to awesome. know each other. Um, yeah, but but uh, so tell me. So you're in the MBA program, which is, we, I don't, I mean, that, that's a, it's a rare, it's a very, so I, were you planning not to be an actual practicing physician? That's why you went to, to, to get your MBA? Is that was, that was the career change or, or was it not a career change? It was just a, a supplement. So for me, all I could think was about three to four weeks in advance in my head because I had this terminal illness and my disease mm-hmm. kept relapsing. And so I wasn't thinking about my lifelong career. I was thinking, I'll probably relapse in the next three to four weeks. So I think in, I think in that sort of mindset. 
And what I learned when I said the fourth time that I nearly died, it was while I was getting the only drug that has ever been studied in a clinical trial for my disease and it didn't work. And so all of a sudden there I was, the only drug that has ever been tried wasn't working. I was out of options. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to start conducting lab research and I'm also going to create a foundation to try to raise money and, and push forward research for Castleman's. And so I started doing both and almost within weeks, maybe even maybe a couple months, it became really clear that the biggest hurdles to progress in Castleman disease weren't scientific or medical problems. They were that people weren't working together. Money wasn't being used efficiently. They were managerial and administrative problems. And so I, I was like, okay, I, I'm, you know, about to be finished with medical school. Um, maybe what I really need to really make progress against Castleman disease isn't to go on to residency or to do a PhD. It's to get an MBA from Warden because I thought that the skill, the skills I could pick up during the MBA would really help in the fight against Castleman. It's interesting because uh, with my students uh, today, we talked about m the Moneyball story with the Oakland A's and, and Michael Lewis. I, I'm, yeah. I'm a guessing you do know the Moneyball yes. story. Yes. So I asked my students this. I said, who's the real hero? of Moneyball. And I gave them four choices. I gave them Billy Bean, the general manager. I gave them Paul DePodesta, which is played by Jonah Hill in the movie, mm -hmm. um, who's the, the guy who did all the stat work for the Oakland A's. And then I threw out um, uh, uh, Bill James, of course, the founder of modern sabermetrics. And I threw out Michael Lewis himself. Mm -hmm. So I asked my students, who do they think was the real hero? And actually, that's so and it very much a segue to what you're talking about. So first of all, who do you think is the real hero, hero David? I, I, well, I mean, the Jonah Hill character was just great in the, in, in the, the movie, sorry. in the movie. And, and I, I'm a big fan of, of the kind of behind the scenes, like mm -hmm. nerd doing the hard work. So that, that's who I would say. Well, my students were 50, 50 between, well, not quite 50, 50, 40, 40 between um, Bill James, uh, I'm sorry, between the Billy Bean, Brad Pitt character and the Jonah Hill character. But after I gave them a chance to discuss it, they tended to move towards the Billy Bean and the argument that I gave, which is similar to what you described with your experience, the, the real challenge in Moneyball was getting people to accept that this was a different way of doing things that needed to be done. Yeah. And that's a really a managerial question, yes. not a statistics yes. question. And I think in that, in, in that's really what you're, what you're describing is if you were going to save your own life, yep. the thing that had to be different was the management Yes. Um, the knowledge is there. It just needs yeah. to be connected, right? So you end up at Wharton learning how to do this. Yep. And so let's go on with our story. It's a great story because we know the punchline. I mean, I'm sitting here talking to you, <laughs> yeah, which, exactly. is, which is great, right? So it's not like this is going to end badly, or at least not ended badly yet. That's right. um, so That's you, right. you've almost died five times, or within six or four at that time. You, you finish your medical degree. You go to Wharton where you're learning what I've described, managerial stuff yep. and all kinds of other stuff like accounting and marketing and eh, statistics too along yep. the way. Um, and there you are, and, and you're really struggling, and, and you almost don't make it to the graduation, but you do manage to graduate. And now you're started, you essentially started a new organization um, to do the thing that you think was missing, which was to connect everybody. So let's yeah. talk about that, that phase. Sure. So um, I spent a lot of time just understanding the landscape of, of how research is done, and I found that maybe it's not too surprising to you, but there are just incredible silos between researchers. Um, when, there, when silos exist, so data isn't shared between groups, people repeat the same work that other groups have done. Oh, yeah. They do work that makes no sense based on what other people have done because there's no sharing. Um, you end up getting a lot, of, a lot of inefficiencies as I'm describing, but probably the biggest problem of all is that there's no plan. There's no, okay, these are the 10 things we need to do and these are the 10 people to do those things. 
And so what you end up getting is you get randomness and you hope that the right researcher applies for the right project at the right time. And there I was with this terminal illness and I'm like, wait a minute, I don't wanna just like wait and hope that all these things line up. What if I can create a system so that we can identify what are the right research questions to do and then who are the right researchers to do them? And so that's what really most of my MBA was around is figuring out how do you set up those sort of lanes and those systems. And actually, I turned to a bunch of my classmates at Warden to help to build those systems. By the time I finished Warden, we had what we call our international research agenda, which is all the research questions that needed to be done, plus all the people that needed to do them. And you would organize this. So did you realize, you know, you were playing quarterback just to be. <laughs> I, I think you're, I think you're right. I mean, I think, I think that there's a lot of, a lot of quarterback analogies. And I think that, I mean, literally every disease needs a quarterback. I mean, you, you need, and the problem mm-hmm. is it's no one's job to be the quarterback, no researcher, a doctor. We're all busy, you know, doing our, you know, playing our little our corner role. of the game. Exactly. Right? So actually we just, I just heard from Chris Collinsworth earlier and he was describing what makes the quarterback. And I'm, this time I mean the actual quarterback. Yeah. Um, so important. And it, it's that the quarterback, it's not, you would like to think it's uh, because they pass or they run or they're so gifted athletically, but what, what has made Tom Brady so good and, and Peyton Manning um, also is that from the minute they see the, the line or the, what's stacked up against them, they can make yep. that quick change. And yep. that you're, so the defense is always playing kind of at a disadvantage no matter yes. what they throw out there that are disadvantaged and that's what the the football quarterback is doing and that's what you're doing for disease uh, uh cure you're look you're essentially organizing all these random components yes. um, that are just not talking to each other all right so let's take it there so this organization is now in place um, which is an amazing thing because one of the things I, the way you described it, and i work with a lot of uh, lab scientists at, at penn and one of the things that i think is very interesting is they 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 don't always have the um, the person who has the right skills isn't necessarily the person solving your problem. So you're going to kind of line them up. All right. Yes. So so what happened then? Um, now you're in place. You still don't have a disease. You're still effectively essentially dying. I mean, we're all yep. dying, but you were dying a little yep. bit faster than everybody else, maybe a lot faster. Yep. So what happened next? So so then I relapsed and I had some yeah. for the fifth time. I all, I all, and this time I had gotten engaged to to my girlfriend Caitlin and and I just was dreaming of making it to May 24th, 2014 and and knew that I frankly wasn't at the current rate that I was going. So when I relapsed um and and thankfully got chemo that saved my life. Um, when I got out of the hospital, I just I said this is it. You know, it's it's, it's all or nothing now. I have to find a drug. And so the idea is that maybe some drug was already out there. I mean, I knew that I couldn't develop a new drug in time to save my life. I had a few months to go and, and I figured maybe there was some drug already out there. And so my work became running experiments on my samples with the hope that I could find something about my samples that would make me think that a drug that's already FDA approved for some other condition could actually work for me. It's a concept called drug repurposing. Mm-hmm. And so I just got to work. I mean, I, I was, I was bald and I had no energy and I, but I, I, I just had to keep fighting. And so working in the lab around the clock and eventually um, found a couple patterns in my data that suggested to me that this one part of the immune system, we talked about Castleman's is a problem of the immune system being hyperactive. Well, one of the ways that it, it turns on are through these kind of communication lines. You can think about it almost as like a fire alarm. Like when the fire alarm goes off, firefighters go out and they fight a fire. But imagine in Castleman disease, if like the fire alarm was switched in the on position. So all firefighters are just going around trying to put out fires, even though there aren't really actually fires. And so we had this issue of this communication line being turned on. And in my data, I discovered it for the first time ever in Castleman disease. And and I have this like incredible image uh, from 
looking under this microscope and seeing this result where I was like, oh my gosh, this thing is on. And oh my gosh, there's a drug that targets it. It was developed 30 years ago and no one had ever tried it. So I started testing it on myself. So here's, is this particular, um, this is your version of Castleman or is it everybody who has Castleman have? This is only a... So at the time, we didn't know. At the time, I was the first patient. Now, I, we just published a study a few weeks ago showing that actually most Castleman disease patients have this thing turned on. We, do all, we now know that using this drug does not actually work in all patients. Um, so just because it's on doesn't mean that inhibiting it is going to work. But we do know that this is a lot bigger than just me. Right. So the, 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 the great story is that you, this drug, now what's the name of it? It's called serolimus. Serolimus, which you essentially discovered by looking by uh, data analysis. I, yep. I mean, am I overstepping my, no, my field? Right. But basically data analysis, if you found that this was a candidate and yep. then you tested it essentially on yourself and it's yes. worked. And here you are. Uh, it's like six years later now, I think it is. Over six and a half years. Yeah. Over six and a half years. And you haven't had a re- relapse. No relapses. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, that's, that's, uh, that, that sounds amazing. And, I, and we're hoping that that continues forever. Um, and you may live a long life and, and, uh, and, yeah. and be healthy in this work. But as you did point out, it has not helped for everyone uh, who that's has right. Castleman. So there's still lots of research to do on that score. All right. So let me just set the stage here. So what, what, what you've done is you've done something which sounds like we need to be doing now. We have an organization that, that tries to line up all our resources, and you're going to play quarterback. And here we have a disease, COVID-19, for which it's, it's, we are developing new drugs that are new news, obviously new vaccines. But it seems like the better idea would be to repurpose drugs that are already available um, to actually pursue and to make uh, it make the process. You know, obviously, if something's already safe and effective, um, at least on one thing, you can give it to people and then see if it works. So I want to hear all about that, um, which is, so let's, let's, and a lot of people have been hearing about this. So let's start off by saying, um, have, um, did you get involved in doing this for COVID-19 from the beginning? Is this, is this a, and, and what, it, what has been discovered um, in the repurposing business for COVID-19? You may remember uh, March, Friday, March 13th was kind of when um, the U.S. started shutting things down. And um, I was actually driving down to North Carolina to see family on Friday, March 13th. And I was hearing about what was happening. And I remember thinking to myself, I really hope that some researcher out there who studies immune hyperactivation and cytokine storms and drug repurposing will create an effort to identify existing drugs that could be used and, and, and that they'll follow our blueprint. And then I remember you know, about 30 seconds later, I was like, well, wait a minute, why are you hoping that some researcher does this? Maybe you should just do it. I mean, this is like what I've been, I'm alive because of a repurposed drug. All I do is study immune hyperactivation. You know, maybe we should just do it. So we decided to throw our hats in the ring. I run a lab in a center at Penn it's called the Center for Cytokine Storm Treatment and Laboratory. And so we redirected a large portion of our lab and also the foundation, the CDCN, um, towards COVID research back in, in early, mid-March. And we've been running full speed after it. All right, we're going to come back and talk to David more about that specific. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back, everyone, to Wharton Moneyball. It's Professor Adi Weiner, Department of Statistics, University of Pennsylvania. And I am talking with David Fagenbaum of the School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. And we had a chance to really hear about uh, David's, you know, lifelong 
um, journey first to cure his own illness by creating an organization which would look through all these drugs and repurpose them to cure his own disease, um, Castleman's uh, disease, which he at least cured it in, at least for, at least for the time being within himself. Um, but now he's turning his attention to that same infrastructure to potentially tackle COVID-19. Um, so let me ask you, um, has there been any, what's, what's actually happened with this, with this new direction? Sure. So um, we started back in March to basically try to track the world, all of the drugs used around the world to treat COVID-19. And when we started out, we thought maybe there would be 10 or 20 drugs that are tried. Adi, we're at over 200 drugs that have already been tried to treat COVID-19. And we hear about the same three or four, you know, almost every day in the media. Yes. But actually there are over 200 that have been tried. And so our effort, when we think about drug repurposing, we think about it in terms of, as you said earlier, identifying candidates, validating those candidate drugs in the lab, and then giving them to humans, tracking how it does in humans, moving forward to randomized controlled trials, and then getting towards a world where, where you adopt that drug. So it's, it's a five-step process. So we have been really focused early on on this, well, what's actually being given? Let's track it when it's given to humans, whether it's a trial or not in a trial. But we've also been using that information around what seems to be working or not working to think through what are some additional candidate drugs? What are some mm-hmm. other drugs that are like the ones that are working or not working that maybe we should start, start early on in the pipeline? Our lab also is, is studying uh, data from COVID-19 patients to identify more drugs that can come down the pipeline. But, but our, our focus really has been on tracking these drugs that have already been used. Right, so you're, again, you're playing the role of quarterback, right? Uh, we're doing this. Now, let, me, let me just make sure that we understand the distinctions. So remdesivir, if I'm pronouncing that properly, that's a new drug. So that's, that's not right. what you're in search of. You're not trying to find new drugs. Well, um, you, you know, we, we have expanded our scope. You're right. When we initially started out, we said we're going to be repurposing only. But remdesivir, though, it was, though it's not yet approved for anything, and it wouldn't be a typical drug that we repurpose, we like to repurpose drugs that are already approved because then you know it's safe and it's effective for right. something. But remdesivir, Desivir was developed initially for Ebola. So we, we, we actually cap, we included in our definition uh-huh. of, you know, it's being repurposed, but the, the truth is there's actually even specific drugs like the Regeneron drug that was developed for COVID um, that we're including in our, in our, in our pipeline. Cause you can't be a quarterback if you like, you know, eliminate like this one fraction of one thing. You got, you got to have the big picture. In mind. You got to look at the picture. Yeah. All right. So, so your goal is look at this big picture, look at all these drugs that potentially can work. There's over 200 of them being tried around the world. And I guess you're probably cooperating with dozens and dozens of countries. Yes. Um, so let me ask you, let's get, let's, let's talk to brass tactics here a little bit. Sure. Um, so let's start by saying um, uh, what has been the most promising success? So I'm going to give you a little background. My statistical analysis have, have been tracking um, essentially the progress that there has been in treating the disease in terms of preventing deaths. Mm-hmm. It's a difficult number to track because we don't have good data. It's not, you don't track, death isn't being assigned necessarily to the date that death happened. So we get this lumpy data. Um, we also don't know whether we're missing cases. Um, and the big, of course, problem is we don't, there's many, many cases cases themselves that are missed, so we don't have the right denominator. Yeah. Uh, but it does seem as if, uh, if you sort of look at, at hospitalizations that convert to deaths, which is a, it's yep. just a decently robust statistical construct, those do seem to be substantially down since they were in the early days of Wuhan, Milan, yep. and you know, New York City. Um, so I do believe, at least in the data, there does seem to be considerable progress. Well, I guess I should ask you, do you agree? And then if you do agree, what is the best, uh, what is, where's, if there, is there a single drug that's done the most work for doing that? Or is it other things? Yeah, great question. So um, I agree. I think there has absolutely been progress. Um, 
I think a, a few things are happening. The first that's really important to point out is that drugs that work on patients uh, late in their disease course mm-hmm. are not showing that they're effective early and drugs that are effective early are not necessarily effective late. late. And so, wow. so it's really important the timing that you give a drug. So you might do a trial and say, oh, this drug doesn't work. Well, when did you give it? It might actually either work earlier or later. And so the, the two best examples are dexamethasone and remdesivir. So dexamethasone costs less than $1 a day. It was developed 70 years ago, and it's incredibly safe and effective, and effective for many things, but in particular, COVID. There's a 35% reduction in death in patients who are on ventilators who are treated with dexamethasone. So this really impressive reduction in death if you're really, really sick. Now, if you give it to people who are not yet on oxygen, there actually was a trend towards you might actually do worse off. So, so you don't want to give dexamethasone if you, if you just were infected or if you might be infected. On the, the flip side of that is remdesivir, where if you give remdesivir to someone who's in the ICU on a ventilator, there's no effect. But if you give remdesivir early on in their disease course, you have a much lower, um, or much lower mortality according to press releases, and then you also have certainly improved outcomes related to discharge from hospitals. Okay, so let me just, just su- summarize this. So what it, and I think this has to do with the fact that there's different problems at different stages. Yes. So at the end, it's like your disease, Castleman's disease, it's cytokine storm that's yes. killing you. And so, um, uh, so dexamethasone, if I'm pronouncing it, is a steroid, right? Yep. So that lowers your immune system and that's this right. allows you, right. So that's, and so it wouldn't work early, but it would work late. And it actually might hurt early, right? It could actually hurt early. So no, when would be, now I'm going to give you a statistical problem, yep. um, which is difficult, which is that um, at the end stage, when you're ready on a ventilator and in the ICU, uh, your chances of survival, at least early on, were very bad. And so mm-hmm. that gives you a very clean, noise-free background to measure the success of a drug. Yep. Uh, because if, if eight out of 10 people are dying anyway, and it doesn't take very many patients to prove statistically right. if, that you have an effect, even if that effect is small. Yes. Um, so this is a statistical construct that's very important. If the, if the disease is very, very bad, you don't need very many patients to even yep. find a small effect mm-hmm. on the flip side. The flip side is you turn it around and take people who are not in the hospital that have recently been diagnosed. The overwhelming majority of those people are not going to have a problem. Exactly. Which means that if you have a small effect, you're going to need a massive, massive patient size to to prove it. So what has that done to the other side? Is there anything that's shown to be effective? Like remdesivir, when you apply it, when is it that it's being given? Yeah, so that, that's exactly what we've seen with remdesivir is that you have to give it early. So remdesivir is an antiviral. It's actually mm-hmm. directly working on preventing viral replication. So the idea is early on in disease, you've got a bunch of virus and your immune system starts trying to fight the virus. And for some people, they clear the virus and then they just get better. But for other people in the effort to fight the virus, the immune system gets so out of control and so activated that it starts causing all this other damage to your heart, your lungs, your right. kidneys. So if, so, I'm, so, if, so if I'm diagnosed with COVID, hopefully I'm not, but it could happen. Yep. It's happening all over. There's, a, there's a hills and valleys of this in the United States. Yep. Um, let's say I get diagnosed with COVID and I'm feeling, um, I don't know, let's say I got diagnosed because I was exposed to someone who was yep. positive and then I went and got tested and I turned out to be positive. Um, what do you do? You get so, anything? Yeah. So I think, so if you're hospitalized, you definitely want to go ahead and get on remdesivir as mm-hmm. soon as you walk in the hospital. Okay. Um, so if and, you can't breathe and you're really feeling really sick sufficiently enough to need to go to the emergency room, you're going to get remdesivir almost right away. Yeah. Well, I don't know if they're giving you in the, in the emergency department, but that the data suggests that that would be helpful for you if, okay. if you got it that soon. But so if you're hospitalized or ED, you, 
that would be great to get remdesivir based on the data. I have also heard there's some shortages of it, but you'd want to get remdesivir early. And then if you start getting oxygen, so if they start giving you nasal cannula where they're actually giving you oxygen through your nose or put you on a ventilator, you need to get dexamethasone. Um, and so those two things would be, that, so you want to get remdesivir as early as you can, and you want to wait on dexamethasone until as late as you can. Okay, but let me give you, the first, let's say I have no symptoms or very, very mild symptoms or, or mild enough so that I don't need to go to the hospital. Is there anything I should be expecting? My, what would my GP give me? Anything? Yeah, so so right now, um, depending, so so as of right now, there isn't a good drug in that scenario, um, mm -hmm. although there are some promising agents. Um, just recently, uh, there's a drug, and it's so interesting, the whole idea of the immune system being out of control on one end, and then, and then really you, wanna, you almost want to ramp it up early, but then you want to make sure that it doesn't get out of control on the other end. And so a drug that actually ramps up the immune system, if given early on, seems that it also helps with outcomes. And so, so in theory, what I think we'll work towards in the future is you ramp up the immune system early and then you have dexamethasone as kind of a backup to say, okay, we, we don't want to ramp it up too much on the end. And so this is a drug called interferon beta um, that looks promising that you could potentially give early. Um, two other drugs that are, that are cheap and, and widely available, one's famotidine or Prilosec and the other one are statins, the blood pressure medic. Or sorry, okay, so statin is, is for cholesterol. So actually cholesterol. I want to, let's talk about statins first and I'll give you sure. a little bit of what I know. First of all, I'm on it. Uh, <laughs> I'm on Good. a statin. I don't, it's an interesting question. We can talk about statins in general. So I've, been, I've fought with my GP, for, who's a pen doctor, for a little bit about that because I come from a family history of high cholesterol but no heart disease. Yep. Um, so I have high, high heart cholesterol but no heart disease. And uh, he kept wanting to put me on it for the last 15 years. And I don't like to take drugs, particularly um, – I don't know why I should if I didn't feel bad. Um, so we made a deal. And when I turned 50 and some of the blah, blah, blahs, I'll leave them off the air. And I ended up taking the statin and I didn't have a negative result. Um, so about a few percentage of people have bad, you know, some side effects to it. Yep. Um, so, but I did read early on and there's a lot of crappy analyses about COVID-19. When I mean yep. crappy, a lot of observational analysis. The problem with observational analysis from a statistical perspective is you don't know how that data came to be. And you don't know what kinds of confounding factors or other, other, other misdirections that are happening in the data. But it did seem, a couple of things uh, seemed to be interesting. One is that a positive blood seemed yeah. to be a bad thing. I have that. Um, I do too. You also, it's very common. 35% of the population has a positive. So it's not like a rarity. Um, but, or, or another way to look at it is that O, o seems to be a good blood, maybe protective. Yeah. But I lo looked along the way that it seemed to be statin taken seemed to help. Um, so this was observational. So, and this was uh, at least a couple months ago now. So tell me what, uh, so you brought up statins um, and there seems to be some evidence that statins is giving a statin a good idea right off the bat. So we're way too early to start giving statins because just as you said, the, the primary result, and actually it's a, it's a paper that's just hitting the press any day now oh. um, that I was a part of reviewing that that particular paper um, suggests that there is an effect uh, or suggests there may be an effect of, um, of statins. And this is an observational retrospective cohort, but they did a pretty good job of matching. So they used propensity scores. They tried to match as best they could people who got statins versus didn't. But as you know, there are so many confounders. So I mentioned statins and famotidine. Famotidine Prilosec is another one where they did the exact same analysis. That's an over-the-counter drug, isn't it? Exactly. Over-the-counter okay. Prilosec um, found that there was what looked like similar to statins, a, a large effect that people that were on the drug 
had a lower mortality in the hospital. And so, um, again, these are sort of kind of associations, correlations, not necessarily causation. But the good news is, is that Prilosec and statins are, are two of the most frequently used drugs in the world. So we know that you can Super take safe. them for years and, and be safe. So the idea of being on them for a couple of weeks and, and, you know, if they could actually help you against your disease is great. But the only way we'll know that is if we do a randomized controlled trial. Ah, so, okay. So, so Prilosec is underway for a trial. I think sta- I think there will be statin trials very soon. Um, but right, I'm, 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 I'm going to stand on my, my statistics hat for a moment and point out, if you're, if you're talking about giving it to people who are not in the hospital, the overwhelming majority of them, 99%, depending on age adjusted, and usually these things are not the eldest population anyway because they have all kinds of issues on the side, 99% of the people are going to, be, are going to survive anyway, yep. which means that if the drug has, say, a 20% effect on mortality, you're going to need thousands and thousands of people in a randomized double-blind experiment to have any power. And that's basically to have the ability to conclusively detect that 20% drop. Now, if that drop was much, much bigger, then you'd yep. need fewer. And that's because of the rarity of the, of the outcome. So that just lays the groundwork for why it's going to be some time, if at all, um, before we get a clean result on something like that. Very true for mortality, but we could use some surrogates, like whether you go on to get hospitalized right. or whether, if you are hospitalized, whether you're going to get a ventilator. And so, um, so those numbers, to your point, you know, because there's a larger number of those things, uh, we, we'd be more power to detect a change. All right. Now, I'm going to turn our attention to one more drug, and I actually queued you up with an email I sent earlier. Um, so from the very beginning, there's been a lot of attention to, um, I'm, I just call it HCQ. Um, yep. What's the actual full name? Hydro- Hydroxychloroquine. It was a very, very common drug to treat malaria and a bunch of other things, maybe lupus disease as well. Um, but the reason why it became controversial was, was uh, our, our technical, or at least our named quarterback, Donald Trump, um, made a big deal out of it early. And, and in this highly, highly hyper-politicized environment that we're in, we didn't just let the, the public, the doctors and the experts kind of figure it out. It's become highly, highly charged. Yeah. Um, there was been lots of studies earlier on observational studies. We talked about observational yeah. studies, some of them at, with attempts to make control. There was a big scandal. I think it was the journal The Lancet that published a giant observational study that turned out to be absolute garbage data. Um, And I don't know if anyone heard about that. I'm sure you're aware of the essentially retraction of these papers. And in fact, it was data scientists who dug into it and realized that this is this is crap. Um, These numbers don't make any sense. And they had showed to great fanfare that this this HCQ doesn't work. There were plenty of studies showing, uh, again, all observational showing that it does work. At this point, we do know a few things. Uh, We do know that I don't believe it works at the end stage. There's been some uh, actual controlled experiments, and that it, I think conclusively, it's not something that you use at the end. Can you? Is that you? What your? What your? Yeah, absolutely. So hydroxychloroquine. There have been a few randomized controlled trials that have read out. Um, interestingly, there are over 150 um, trials that include hydroxychloroquine that are open wow. on clinicaltrials.gov. So there's been this massive, to, to your point, right. interest in, in the drug. Um, thus far, the RCTs that have read out have not shown an effect. So what we're seeing is that, and again, this is, you, you, you can certainly talk to the statistical definition of not showing an effect. Um, so there have been trends like the paper that, that you and I were discussing before this. We're going to discuss it maybe, in a second. Yeah, where maybe, you know, maybe there's an effect, but, but the recovery study, which is the, the big uh, UK study where they looked at hydroxychloroquine versus placebo, and then the same one, it's the same study that revealed the, the uh, importance and the effect of dexamethasone found no effect of, uh, in that study. Um, and so it, it 
the data seem to suggest when you actually look at control, uh, controlled studies where there's a group that's randomly assigned to not get the drug, a group randomly assigned to get the drug, that there do, does not appear to be a significant difference. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to unpack this because one of the things that I read, so there's a study that came out on the 16th of July. It was written up in, in widely. It was an actual random controlled trial of, of, uh, of hydroxychloroquine, uh, HCQ, and it looked at a couple of endpoints. Death wasn't one of them, as we, we pointed out. One of the de- endpoints was uh, hospitalization. Uh, so it was given to approximately 200 in each arm of the study. The placebo versus HCQ was double blind, so no one knew anything. And they compared, they looked at two endpoints from what I could tell. One was uh, how, uh, how, what fraction of the patients in each group, which each arm of the study, um, were disease-free or symptom-free after two weeks. And they found, and then they also looked at what fraction of the, of the in each arm were hospitalized at any point due to COVID-19. And, the, and those are their, their two endpoints. And the, they, they wrote that there was no difference. And the, the, uh, the newspaper wrote that there was no difference. But when I actually read the paper, they, they, they misstated it. The actual, the actual result is it was inconclusive. And one of the things that's very important is there's a very big difference between no statistically significant difference yep. and an inconclusive result. And the, and the reason why that's important is that these events are rare. Hospitalization are, are rare and that you can have um, a difference that's actually important, yet it's not statistically significant. So let's, uh, let's talk about the first result. Uh, the percentage that, that, that were disease-free or symptoms-free after two weeks was fairly close. One was about, uh, I think it was 30% in the placebo group and 24% in the control group. Now, we can turn that around and say, hey, that's 20% less. I'd rather have a 20% smaller probability of being disease-free that seems like a lot, right? Um, it just wasn't statistically significant. So that's yep. important to recognize that could, it's reasonable that that difference would have observed by chance, but it actually could be larger. So as a statistician, I turn around and go, further study needed. Yeah. Um, but then, then I looked at hospitalizations and the hospitalization was also similar. It was 50% smaller chance of being hospitalized. But again, that difference wasn't statistically significant. So I would have written still inconclusive. But really where I want to put you to you as a doctor and a researcher um, and someone who had to try desperation, right? Supposing we have the data that we have now and we have a bunch of studies which are all kind of sort of inconclusive, particularly the the most recent RCT, random controlled trial, placebo blind, double blinded, which suggest nothing conclusively. But it's a very safe disease uh, a, a drug for and assuming you have no heart arrhythmias or any any contraindications that you shouldn't take it. So and here's the question I'm, I'm bringing it to you directly. Would you take it? So if you asked me this two months ago, I would have said, absolutely, you know, mm-hmm. give it to me. We don't have any information and we're in a wartime. Give it give it to me right away. I think that. Um, and you're right. I mean, these p-values, so the, the likelihood that this is happening by random chance and not real, these, these they're trending towards significance. So you're right. There's there's certainly um, I love that trending towards significance. What yes. a great great good expression. That's what we would call a meta-analysis to put that together. But they're very yeah. hard because they these studies yeah. are run differently. So go on. We're so something. if you asked me a few months ago, I would have said, please give it to me. You know, I can't get it fast enough. Um, where we are today, knowing that. Um, that there have been a number of studies that have read out that haven't shown an effect or haven't shown a statistically significant effect, studies that have shown that there have been some increased uh, rates of adverse events. So I think this mm-hmm. study actually did show increased um, rates of adverse events in the treated group. I would say I went remdesivir early. 
um, potentially inhaled interferon beta, um, if, if, if we can actually see the data from the study and it's not just a press release, um, but then I want Dexlate. Do you want Dexlate? Would you do the, would you do the statin or the, um, the Prilosec? I, I wouldn't do the statin or the Prilosec because to your point, it's, it's just a retro, it's just retrospective data. I really don't like to make decisions until, until we have some, you know, actual controlled data. But of course, like I said, three months ago, all bets are off. Well, so what's happening now, just looking through the data, um, is there's, we're in a new sort of testing regime. And what I mean by that is, you know, anytime anyone enters a hospital for any procedure or anything at all, you get tested. Yeah. Um, anyone, um, I'm noticing this with young people. I have, I have uh, three children. All of them are 18 years and older. Um, I notice that they and their friends, they often want to go to get together, but they're still careful. So they talk about uh, quarantining for a few days, all getting tested, and yep. then go spending a, a week together in the cabin, up in, up wow. in a cabin somewhere. Um, and whether, I don't, we don't have to agree whether that's a good idea or a bad idea, but they're out there getting tested without yep. having any fundamental reason. Let's go back to sports. We had 11,500 Major League Baseball staff and players all get tested because that would, in order to enter to play. Um, there were 4,000 Harvard uh, lab students and, 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 and technicians who all needed to get tested in order to get to be allowed back into the labs. We're talking about literally tens of thousands, thousands of people getting tested, not because they've been exposed or feel like they have symptoms, et cetera, et cetera. So what this is going to do is going to generate people, like I'll say this, uh, 80, something like 75 major league baseball players tested positive. This was before they got to the, to the, um, to the, to the training camp, which was really summer camp, which is there. And then now we're seeing NFL, they're going to be tested as well. Um, and you're in this position, you got a positive test um, and you don't have any symptoms do you do something? Do you do something to treat them? And it's, and, and what, basically I'm kind of curious, um, is there going to be any recommendation? So at this stage, I would say, I would say not if someone's yeah. asymptomatic and uh, get a probably a under 40, like that. right. But, but I do think that I'm going to be really closely looking at this, at this famotidine okay. study with, from Prilosec because thousands or millions of people already take Prilosec every day um, is, is a 10 day course of Prilosec or statins going to cause problems. I don't want to say that I would do it or recommend it until we see some stronger data, but those are the kinds of things um, that, that I would love for us to be able to continue to unpack as part of this larger project. And are you quarterbacking some of these studies? Do you know if people are actually looking at these with these? This is a great opportunity to almost say, I mean, I had, I had a student who's a, who's a football player from Mississippi and uh, something like the, the whole team got tested. 25 out of the 50 members of the team tested positive. Wow. Absolutely not a one had a symptom. Um, wow. and, they just, and they sent them back home and they were quarantined. And then two, two weeks later, they came back and now they're playing football. This, this gives you – now, the problem, of course, is the problem of power. We call it statistical yeah. power. If you're dealing with people under 20 even, even under 30 – who are positive tests, the, the positive outcome is so almost certain that you wouldn't, you know, you need so many patients to treat to even notice anything. Uh, yep. And that makes it really hard. Yep. Yes. Um, okay. So let me ask you a question about false positives. Sure. This is a problem, right? If we're trying to, uh, um, if we're for, particularly for sports, right? So, um, or if we're going to shut down a, a, the athletic team because we have a positive result, um, so what, what do you know about false positives? It, is it yet an, it's never been an issue early because people who were being tested were sick. Um, yeah. So, but what is it, what, what, what do you know about the status of false positives and, and where do they come from? And is it, is it an issue? 
Sure. Every, every test that humans do, um, we have, we make mistakes, both false positive and false negative. So false negative or sorry, false positive, meaning that you get a positive result when you really didn't have the virus and, and the reverse can happen when you're false negative where you had it and the test didn't pick up on. That's it. always been a problem from the beginning. Uh, yes, the uh, absolutely. And so both, so anytime you're dealing with humans, you're going to have both sides of these, uh, it's challenging because there are a number of factors. So we're, we're getting uh, samples from, from the back, back of your nasopharynx. So, you know, it could be a problem with getting the, the, the swab. That's there. a fancy it, word for the back of your throat. Or yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, it could be a problem with getting the swab there. It could be a problem with, um, with the way the samples handled. It could be once it gets to the lab, it gets misplaced. There, there's, there are a lot of things that could, that can happen. And, um, it could be that there's a contamination where the, you know, the same instrumentation is used on two samples and, and all of a sudden you get a positive when really it was the sample next year's that was supposed to be positive. So how about so also that you may have had a resolved illness three months ago that it still has a dead piece of inactive virus? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, and at one point we were worried that maybe other coronaviruses could result in false positives. The data is pretty good that that's probably not the case. Um, and that having another sort of coronavirus cold is likely not cross uh, reacting and, and being considered a positive. But so all of these things make it so that you're right, you can never be 100% confident in a test result, which is why I'm a big fan of repeating um, these sort of things, because it becomes, it, it, there may be a chance that you're gonna have a false positive once, but the likelihood of multiple Twice. false positives um, on sequential t- exams become very low. And so I, I think that repeated uh, testing is the way to kind of get around this. But of course, epidemiologically, that's not captured. If you got a false, if you got a positive today and a negative the next day, it, it's very hard for CDC or anyone else to try to reconcile that. Oh well, that was false versus that's almost impossible to do. Yeah, and this is a tr- as a statistician, it's very hard for me to deal with the very poor data quality you can describe it. And the problem of false positives, which was an issue early on with the serology tests um, that were done to try to look at the disease prevalence. Well, we only have a few more minutes left, so I just want to ask you, um, what are you looking at right now, and what is what it, what should I be looking if I were to have another conversation with you in four weeks, and and I want to ask you what happened, what, what what's, yep. what's 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 coming up. So the biggest thing right now is to go from, um, we've been very focused on drugs that have been given to humans with COVID-19 and, and whether they seem to be working or not working. Um, what's become clear is I've discussed, had a number of conversations with the federal government and pharmaceutical companies and, and others that are in the space, is that the problem is, is that we're looking at drugs being given to patients. Um, other people are looking at drugs being tested in, in, in test tubes. Other people are looking at randomized controlled trial data. Other people are making recommendations. And we have another problem of, har- of lack of harmonization. So we have a problem of silos again. And so what I'm really working on and what I'm turning my attention to over the next, um, really it's, it's now, is how can we expand our current Corona project from not just tracking drugs given to patients now, but to also including what drugs should maybe be given to patients in the future, what, what drugs are promising, and then what drugs are being given to people, but they haven't been studied in a randomized controlled trial yet, and they should be because they look so promising. Mm-hmm. Again, this is kind of, to, to use the analogy we were discussing earlier, trying to get towards more of a quarterback for this whole pipeline. And um, I think it's going to be critical because there are tons of, of philanthropic organizations and companies that are investing incredibly heavily into different drugs. We talked about hydroxychloroquine with over 150 trials. And so we need to figure out what are the most promising drugs and then invest in them. 
can't wait to find out how, what happens the next time we get together and talk, maybe just for 10 minutes, or, or maybe we just sit in there and talk about football. I mean, that's fine, too. I, I, I would love say. that, honestly. <laughs> I, 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 need, I need a football break. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Well, I don't know if you watch baseball, but we're looking for it on Thursday to see the opening day, Yankees versus the Nationals. Anyway, David, thank you so much for joining me on Wharton Moneyball, and uh, we look forward to having you back in our program in the future. 